0: This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome.
1: When, when I was decided to do the Mississippi River, I was looking at the map and I was like, well, if I do the Mississippi River and I get dumped out in the Gulf, it's really not that much farther, just to row home, just to row to East Texas. And uh, And then I was looking at that and I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense because... If I row home, I will row to the spot, basically, that my brother died at. He died. He crashed his airplane into the river by accident. And uh, and so I was like, then I will end up rowing to that spot in the water. And it just all of a sudden clicked for me. I was like, that's that's where that, that was. It, it might not have been my plan all along, but it was my path all along was to go to that spot and be and. And it's no coincidence that it happened to be a waterway because the water is all connected. All the water that flows down into the Gulf of Mexico, you know, all the salt water gets picked up by the clouds and deposited into the river. It all flows back again. It's all just this cycle. And I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense. That's where I need to be. So it wasn't just rowing home. It was rowing to the start of where, where this all. I, I started doing the Missouri River in the first place because of this spot, because of this what happened in this spot in the trinity river so this is where i will end and that's what i did
0: this episode comes to you from a grumman canoe in the biggest rivers in north america ellen falterman grew up in east texas with her folks and two brothers running around the back 40 barefoot hunting and alive her dad is a pilot and so is she and so is her brother patrick in 2016 her brother Patrick unintentionally crashed his plane into the Trinity River in Texas, a river that flows to the Gulf of Mexico. His life ended that day. Ellen was 21. At some point during the year after her brother's death, Ellen decided that she wanted to be in the middle of an adventure on the one year anniversary of his death. She settled on her second ever river trip, the journey of paddling the Missouri River from Three Forks, Montana to its confluence with the Mississippi River at St. Louis, Missouri. She would accomplish that goal, and upon seeing the confluence of these great rivers, and with a two-year break, Ellen then embarks on a full-length trip down the Mississippi River from Minnesota to the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. And then the final stage, the rowing home from the Mississippi's mouth along the Gulf Coast and through the Intracoastal waterway to Texas and up the Trinity River to the same spot where her brother was last alive, all by water. You will meet Ellen after this ad from Jack's Plastic Welding. Jack's Plastic Welding has been working with the River Radius for the entirety of 2020. Jack's year-end sale is happening right now. All Paco pads, dry bags, and boats are 10% off now until December 23rd of 2020. This sale is accessible via direct online purchases from Jack's Plastic and from most retail shops that carry Jack's Plastic gear. You can find them on the web at www.jpwinc.com. That is www.jpwinc.com.
1: My name is Ellen Falterman. I am a flight instructor. I teach people how to fly small airplanes.
0: Tell us about the Missouri River, the miles you did from Montana to, to St. Louis, how many days the whole trip was, time of year, where you started,
1: that was uh, about four years ago in 2016. I put in um, at Three Forks, Montana. The intersection of the the Madison, the Jefferson, and the Gallatin rivers converge, and that's considered the navigable headwaters of the Missouri River. So I put in there, and I went 2,300 miles, you know, all the way through the Great Plains and down through Missouri at the confluence of the Mississippi River in St. Louis. Um, and that took me a hundred days. Exactly. I didn't plan on it being exactly a hundred days. It just worked out to be a great number. And, um, that was in the summertime. I put in like, I think around June and then finished July, August, September. Yeah. October. If that makes sense.
0: And this trip was solo. It was. And what kind of boat did you have on that trip?
1: It was a 18 foot Epic kayak that was loaned to me by a friend. And I just borrowed it for the trip and gave it back to him with a real pretty waterline on her that won't come off, <laughs> and and it was it, it, he was like thanks. You know I didn't know anything about kayaks when I started. I'd never really been in a kayak, and uh, this is just the one that my friend loaned me. He's a racer and a long distance kayaker, so he had this really nice epic kayak. And I didn't, you know, i just hopping in a kayak like no big deal. I didn't. This is a really long and skinny kayak. It's racing slash touring kayak so you can race long distances in it and still carry gear um and like i said it's really narrow so it's super tippy but i didn't i I thought all kayaks were supposed to be like this and i learned how to paddle it 2300 miles
0: so tell us more Tell, tell me more about the great plains and going across there
1: well it's um it was nothing like i expected i did not know really what i was put what I was gonna go through in the Great Plains because you have um there's well I mentioned Fort Peck Lake that's in Montana and then you have Lake Sakakawea which is massive Lake Oahe which runs through basically the heart of South and North Dakota and then you have a series of smaller lakes after that like Lake Francis Case, Lake Sharp, um, Lake Lewis and Clark and and every one of those will kick your butt. (laughs) They're there you can't you see the other side of a lot of them. It took me weeks to cross them. You're not on a river anymore. I was expecting to be on a river, but it is uh, is a lot of lake time and you gotta be prepared for that big for big waves, big water, big wind, and be prepared to wait.
0: Did you ever tip over?
1: I tipped over once in Fort Peck Lake. It was my first massive reservoir that I'd ever paddled on. Um, I'd only did on the river for probably two or three weeks by the time I got to Fort Peck Lake. So I was still learning my boat. So, yeah, I flipped, and it, I just shouldn't have been on the water. I didn't know how to put, put my bow into the waves. I didn't know what angle to to paddle at. I didn't know anything about anything. And I flipped really close to shore. Uh, I, 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 I righted my boat, and I swam to shore with the boat. Um, I had practiced just self-riding procedures. I had a skirt on, so I had to punch out. Um, and all I lost was a toothbrush. Everything else was fine. I got to shore. I bailed my boat, and I took a nap.
0: <laughs> You're saying here that this is your first time being in a, in a kayak, getting familiar with this kind of water. In one of your blog essays, I, I read where you wrote that you have a fear of moving water. So a couple questions with that. Can you just tell us about that fear of moving water, and do you still have that fear
1: of moving water? Yes and yes. The fear of moving water was because of my brother and I's disaster trip in the Amazon, where our canoe got swamped in, like, flash flood currents and swept under a log, and we both almost didn't make it out alive, and it was, like, a whole situation, and I was 19 years old and very impressionable. So after that, obviously, I, I, I look at fast-moving water, and it's like my adrenaline is like, whew, and it's, like, it makes, I feel, have that, that feeling. And so I remember looking at the water in Three Forks, Montana, the day of me putting in the water and looking at that and going, Oof! And I just got in the boat and, and started paddling. And, and it was really nice that I, that I put in at the river there because it, it's, even though it's fast moving, it's, it's small. And I just kind of took it one bin at a time and got to know the water and got to know my boat and got to know being by myself. I'd never traveled by myself. It was just, everything was so new. And I just, I mean, you just follow the current and I, and I learned.
0: Were you, were you enjoying being alone?
1: I was. I needed some alone time at the time. So I, I started at, at Montana, putting, putting in at the river there because my brother Patrick that I went down the Amazon with or up the Amazon with, uh, he had just died in 2016. This was in, I did the Missouri River in 2017 the next year because I needed some alone time. Uh, and I wanted to go, go be on a river and go, go kind of like be with my brother in that way.
0: I read I read, and I've also listened to some of your other interviews where you state that as the anniversary of your brother's death approached, you felt like you wanted to be in the middle of doing something, I don't know, cool, epic, big. And I don't mean in the middle like a day hike, but in the middle of a larger adventure. So that day shows up, the anniversary of your brother's death. What did you find yourself doing that day?
1: I was in the middle of paddling the Missouri River. And actually, what was very fun about that is I was in the first day of the free-flowing Missouri River. So I, was, I had just finished Lake Lewis and Clark, and I was on the free-flowing Missouri. After that, there's no more dams.
0: Was, was it good to be there on that free-flowing river in the middle of this big journey? Was it Was it some of what you were looking for?
1: You know, it wasn't the epiphany I was looking for, like... It it was a day just like any other, as far as because I'm in expedition mode. At that point, I'm looking for places to camp. I'm making sure I have food and water. I'm making miles. I'm like it was. It was. It wasn't as grand as I expected it to be when I first set out. But I don't think that was the point. The point was that it was a day just like any other, and it's just as beautiful and just as special as all the other days.
0: So you get to St. Louis. This is your first stretch. Frame it in for us, because you, you talked about that you wanted to be on an expedition at the anniversary of your brother's death. And so that's the Missouri trip, and you complete the trip. You get to St. Louis, you get to the confluence, and what goes on in your head? Uh, besides the fact that you're loading up and going on to party, maybe you want to take a shower and eat a bunch of food, what is the other thing that's on your mind about what you're seeing with the river?
1: The Mississippi. You know, you're looking around and you're like, I'm in a whole new river. And a lot of people, when they do a decent of the Missouri, well, I mean, I say a lot. There's not many people who do a decent of the Missouri every year in the first place. I think it's like eight to ten people a year. They'll, They'll hang a right and they'll go all the way to the Gulf from there. And then that is then considered the largest source to see in the United States that you can do from Montana to the Gulf of Mexico. So a lot of that trip is Mississippi, too. So when I got to the Mississippi, I mean, I did not feel like going to the Gulf because I I was like, whoa, whoa, whole new river. I got, look at all this river to the left of me, which would be upstream. Um, I got to go, I got to go get on this river. And I did.
0: What date did you get to St. Louis when you were on the Missouri?
1: It was in mid-October of 2017.
0: Okay. So 2017, October you finish the Missouri, and then when do you you, you... you do decide to do the Mississippi. When do you go up to the headwaters of the Mississippi?
1: Uh, I come back two years later. So in 2019, I started at the headwaters of the Mississippi.
0: Let's talk about the Mississippi. First off, where did you put in?
1: I put in at the headwaters in Lake Itosca, Minnesota, which is and that is considered the headwaters. It's a small lake. I did a whole lap around the lake, and it was like two miles. And there's like a little uh, stretch of rocks, Across the water, and, and there's a little state park there, and right across the rocks is a little creek, and that's the headwaters of the Mississippi.
0: How wide is this outlet from the lake?
1: Like three feet, four.
0: Tell us, tell us about the boat, because you don't have the borrowed canoe this time. You have, the, you have the boat. Tell us about the boat.
1: Yeah, so I switched from kayak to canoe now. My dad and his brother's. Used to paddle this boat around in the Chafalaya Basin. They grew up in South Louisiana. They paddled it around as boys and went camping on, on oil platforms and had a good old Cajun upbringing time. It's been in my family since 1975 and uh, it ended up sitting at my uncle's chicken coop for like 20 years. I, I tracked it down and He's like, I'm not using it. It hasn't been in the water in about 20 years, but you can have it. And I just kind of like inherited it, you know, trip number one in the Amazon was with a canoe and that was a disaster. And that's why I decided to switch to a kayak because I, I wanted hatches. So my shit would be, you know, stowed. And then I didn't like the kayak life because it was very constricting and I was just sitting down all day and so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back to a canoe, but I don't want to swamp and lose all my gear again. So I put a pair of oars on this canoe, two nine-foot oars. They act like outriggers, and they keep my boat super stable. And they allow me to maneuver a boat that, I mean, it's a 17-foot aluminum Grumman canoe. She, she's a hoss for me because I'm 105 pounds. So I cannot maneuver a 17-foot aluminum canoe by myself with a single-bladed paddle, but I can with two 9-foot oars.
0: And the rowing setup, when I first heard about this thing, I thought, oh, man, this is some homemade rowing gig. It's going to be janky, but it's actually pretty smooth. Did You you bought it as a package?
1: Yeah, yeah. Here's a plug for Gary Piantadosi and his uh, rowing rigs. The first time I saw a rig like this, I was on the Missouri River with a group of friends, actually. And this guy shows up in this massive wooden canoe with this pair of oars. And I'd never seen anyone row in my whole life, except for like on the Olympics and TV or something. And I was like, wow, that is the coolest thing ever. And he let me row the rig. And of course, I was terrible at it. And I uh, thought I was like, I got to I got to get my hands on this. And he just gave me the the name and the website and I bought, I bought it and it came in the mail.
0: Did you, did you just love that boat?
1: Oh, I, I, I'm just, I I try not to be attached to objects, but man, I'm attached to that boat.
0: (laughs) How did that boat change your relationship with the whole journey?
1: Um, so much for the better because now, uh, once I, I got comfortable with the rowing motion and, and I was, you know, because you kind of have to think backwards. But once I got confident with that, it was like, it was like a dream. It was like, fine. it was like a big sigh of relief. It was like, finally, I'm comfortable on the water. Finally, I'm confident in my boat. It's a great, it's a great motion. It's a whole body motion. It almost feels like, like breathing. You You move with the breath and you move the body. I'm fully convert over to rower.
0: You're coming down the Mississippi. You're in Minnesota. Tell us some of the things you're seeing between Minnesota and St. Louis. What do you? What's going on in there?
1: Well, there's 29 locks starting in uh, Minneapolis is the first lock, and you got to go through every one. Before you even get to the lock, you know the lock's coming up because the river slows and widens because it makes a small lake almost. Um, because that's the whole point of the locks is that it pools the water to where it makes it deeper, so that you have at least a nine-foot channel. That's what the tugboats need is a nine-foot channel. So you're going along, and the river gets wider. The river starts slowing down. You're like, okay, a lock's coming up. I mean, hopefully you have your maps, and, and you knew that before. And I usually call ahead, for like 30 minutes in advance, and ask them what the situation is, and, and then tell them that I'm coming through. And then I also have a marine radio, and I'll call them on the marine radio when I get closer. So they aren't expecting me. And sometimes you have to wait a little bit for like if there's already a tug being locked through, Um, but they'll always try to get me through. Like if there's a line of tugs waiting, say there's three tugs waiting to go downstream, they'll let me go ahead because it only takes me like 15 minutes to lock through and it takes a tug like an hour and a half to lock through. Um, They open the gates, you go through the gates, they shut the gates behind you. They usually throw down a rope and make you hold on to a little rope. I always tried to float in the middle just because of my oars were really long and it was hard for me to get close to hold on to the rope. And the water drops by however much it's gonna drop. I think the biggest drop I did was like 20 feet. It was pretty crazy. And then the gates on the other side open, they blow the horn and you go through.
0: The Mississippi River is flowing almost due south for its entire course from Minnesota to Louisiana. Much of the terrain from Minnesota to St. Louis was glaciated. In the upper sections where the Mississippi is coursing between Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa, is an area informally described as an unglaciated island. Formally, this region is known as the Driftless Area 15,000 square miles of unglaciated lowland and plateau with the Mississippi River slicing right through it. Deep valleys, steep ridges, springs, waterfalls. It is called the Driftless because this area does not have the drift normally left behind by glaciers. Drift being the debris of the glaciers as they scour the earth.
1: So that'd be the driftless region. Oh, the driftless is beautiful. It's like it was probably my. I, you know, I hate to pick favorites, but it was probably my favorite part of the whole Mississippi River was the driftless. It's just a whole bunch of channels. I mean, there's the main channel, but you you never have to be in the main channel. You can just be in shoots all day long. They call they all call them a shoot or a, a slough, and just, and you're all of a sudden you're on a on a on like a you know a six foot wide little little channel and just rowing along and, or little river i call I called it Little Big River when you're in the little chutes and then and then you get dumped out into the main current and there's all the barges and the tugs going by and you and you cross the river and you go into another chute and you could just do that all day long for like three four weeks uh, i I could have done that my, the whole rest of my life.
0: Ellen started this Mississippi trip in two thousand nineteen as she approached St. Louis. She got word from her family that her grandmother was ill. Ellen stopped her river trip at St. Louis and went to be with her grandmother, who eventually passed. A year later, Ellen returned to the same place in St. Louis and reignited her trip. She speaks here about the three main sections of the Mississippi.
1: The Mississippi is such a journey. There's three sections of the Mississippi. You have the upper, upper, which is where it's free-flowing, no locks, no dams. There are a couple of lakes, but they're natural lakes. Really, really pretty, upper, upper. And then you have, like I said, the first lock in Minneapolis. So that would be the upper Mississippi. would be from Minneapolis to St. Louis. And then you're doing all the locks and stuff and the driftless. And also a whole other journey, because then you're kind of like doing this, this routine where you're half living in the wild and then half locking through and talking to people in the lock. And then after St. Louis... It's big boy school, and you're, you're dealing with a lot of traffic. You get to Baton Rouge, New Orleans. You're starting talking ocean, ocean traffic, big ocean ships. And, and when you came from Lake Itasca, Minnesota, and you're in Baton Rouge, and New Orleans rowing past all this stuff, it is such a journey. It, it, and I think that, that was what makes the Mississippi – like, I can see the appeal of it because you, you, you have that journey on the Missouri, but you don't, you don't get to see the evolution of the traffic. The fact that it's like such a, a main vein of our country, that shipping channel, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a must do.
0: When it comes time for you to purchase new river gear, do you ever wonder what company out there is doing good work for the planet? Jack's Plastic Welding builds whitewater boats, the original Paco Pad, and dry bags. They also build coral larval rearing pools. A coral larval rearing pool is a tool built for Seacore International, the leading conservation organization for the restoration and protection of coral reefs. They have developed methods to capture coral babies from spawning coral, which are settled onto ceramic tiles and eventually outplanted onto an existing reef. When the babies are first captured, They are placed in the coral larval rearing pool. These pools have been designed by Jax in conjunction with SeaCore and look a lot like an octagonal whitewater raft, without a floor, but with a skirt that drops down about a meter into the ocean water, making an enclosure. Reefs are huge ecosystems which support fish, other ocean life, and economies that depend on them. Reefs need help now more than ever due to degradation caused by many factors including rising ocean temperatures and changes in ocean chemistry. The work Jacks and Seacore are doing supports the restoration of reefs which maintain these important ecosystems. Healthy reefs support the entire ocean, and healthy oceans support the entire planet. Jack's Plastic Welding, hand-built in the United States, doing their part to sustain this planet. While Ellen has become an excellent river boater in her journeys, she is also an airplane pilot, and this is a perspective of the river I wanted to hear more about. We move down the Mississippi from the Driftless, past St. Louis, past Cairo, and down to where the river is big. First, Ellen tells us about her youthful flying, and then we dig in on the aerial views of the lower Mississippi.
1: You can start logging hours at, at 16. Well, I was, I was flying before that, but not logging hours. I was just riding along. Uh, we had a little light sport airplane uh, that we, we actually built it. You can, you can build your own airplane. It's called an experimental airplane. And so we built that when I was like 14, so I learned, I kind of like unofficially learned how to fly in that. And that, and that was really fun because it was, it was a, such a light airplane. You've got really good stick and rudder skills. If you're not on the stick and rudder, the airplane won't fly. Whereas if you hop in a Cessna and you kind of forget about the rudder, the airplane's like, oh, I forgive you. It's like way too forgiving. And I grew up on a short grass strip. I learned how to fly on this short little narrow strip. So I'm used to do, I I like, I like doing that kind of maneuverability, having that ability to fly the airplane and it respond.
0: Do you love your job and flying?
1: I do. I absolutely love, it. I've been a flight instructor for five years, which is like four years, way longer than most people do it. Most people my age just flight instruct long enough to get the hourly requirement of 1500 hours to go join corporate regional airlines. I got my 1500 hours and I'm just still keeping going and, it's like, why, why fix it? It ain't broke. I, don't, I love doing it. I think it's important. I don't really like teaching anything past private pilot because that's the foundation. If you don't have good private pilot teaching, the rest of your flight career is going to be hard. I also believe that, I mean, all, my brother died in an airplane crash while I was an instructor. So all of a sudden, flight instructing became so much more important to me than just teaching people how to fly and making money doing it. It became like a, an important thing that I make sure my students aren't killing themselves and aren't, aren't killing their passengers. It, it's like, it's on another level now.
0: So you took a flight, you, you talk about it on your, I think it's on your Instagram in April of 2019 to go look at the river that you're going to be boating down. So I'd like you just to talk about a few things. You know, what did you see that day? And then what does a river look like from a plane? And I, and I want to say, I've certainly, you know, I geek out in a plane. I'm, uh, it's typically a commercial plane, and I'm in the window, and I love to look at rivers, and so I have that view. But I feel like you're in a plane, you're in control of the plane, you can get really close to the river, you understand currents and braided streams. What does a river look like from a plane?
1: Oh, uh, I mean, you think it's pretty from the water? I, 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 I mean, I've been flying for eight years and I still don't get tired looking at shit from the air. <laughs> My face is glued to the window every flight and I do it like every day. But from the air, you get looking at a river. And I actually just yesterday I flew over the Atchafalaya. I took a flight to Homa with a student and I actually got to fly along the intoaster waterway that I had just finished rowing a couple months ago. So that was also really cool. But you get you get this grander sense of the flow of water. And you know how, like when you're when you look at at the water in a ditch, or maybe water, you know, coming out of your hose, water making a, a new path on something, um, it, it flows the same way. And when you when you go and you look at a river from up high, you see the same flow of water, like it's finding, you know, of course, the easiest route. And and there's a reason that it makes certain turns, and you get just this sense that. Water on a massive scale is doing the exact same thing as water on a small scale, and you just you put it together.
0: So then my next question is, how does, the, how does the aerial view support your boating experience? How does that help you navigate these huge rivers, but also just navigate currents and flow and understanding the next best place to take your boat?
1: Well, it, it helps me understand the next best place to camp. Because you're thinking about, okay, well, if the water is going to make a bend here, it's going to be flowing down here. When water slows down, it drops sediment, okay? And especially, like, um, on, when I was off the river and doing stuff on the Intracoastal waterway and stuff on barrier islands, I, I really had to think about, okay, is there, there's an incoming river, so there's going to be a little bit of a current entering a no current place, so there's going to be sediment dropped here. And, and you, you think about flow and sediment a lot. I mean, from the, from the air, it just helps you visualize what, you know, the water upstream and it pushing and why it's doing the w- thing it's doing. Like I said, it's just, it's just a, this big grand scale of something that you can look at on, on the ground of, of anything, water doing anything. will do the same thing.
0: By the time you're down low on the Mississippi, the the Missouri has come in the Ohio has come in from the east. You have the Arkansas coming in from the lower southern Rockies. The Red River from Texas is coming in, and lots of these other rivers are coming in. You know, the research I did says at that point, the watershed is collecting water from about 32 states within the United States, a little bit of Canada. That average flow down there in, the, in Louisiana in certain points can hit around 600,000 CFS. Peak flows, 3 million CFS. The river world is transformed. The, the ground is wet. Things are really wet. There's a lot of water. There's a lot of, of fluctuation in the volume and the height of the water. And there's two things that I would like you to talk about and help us understand these. One is this Bird's Foot Delta, which is further downstream. The other, I've been saying it as the Atchafalaya River. And you say it. How do you say it?
1: Atchafalaya.
0: Yeah, that place. It sounds fascinating. It sounds like this other place that the river wants to go. I heard it termed as a distributary as opposed to a tributary of the Mississippi, but a distributary. In your blog somewhere, you talk about that your grandpa told you that that place was a creek when he was a kid, and today it's a major river. It's a national heritage area. It's the, quote, heart of the Cajun country. Can you just tell us about this place, and can you one more time say the
1: name, please? So it's called the Atchafalaya, if you want to say it with a Cajun accent. I would love to talk to you about the Atchafalaya because it is a big deal down here in South Louisiana. This whole place is is underwater, basically. When you look at the forest, you fly over the forest, you can see the sun glinting through the forest. All the pastures are rice fields or crawfish fields or sugarcane. They're all flooded. This place is, is underwater and sinking, and it's because of the relationship between the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya. So what's going on is about every every like 2,000 years, river deltas will naturally change course. So that, think of like a like sort of like this sweeping motion. Like if you were to look at a map of the Mississippi Delta and, and, and just zoom back thousands and thousands of years, you'd see the river just sort of sweeping back and forth along the coastline with, within like a 200-mile swath along the coastline. And what's happening there is when the river when rivers deposit into the ocean, obviously the river will slow down. And as water slows down it no longer has enough energy to carry the sediment that it was holding. And of course the Mississippi has a ton of sediment because as you said, it's got like a whole bunch of states. It's basically the, all the dirt from America is coming down the Mississippi. It slows down in the Gulf of Mexico. It drops the sediment. As it drops sediment, it will create land. And we all know that rivers will naturally want to take the easiest course. So once it creates enough land, it's going to divert itself around the land that it just created and make a new delta. And then, and then that delta will get filled up and it'll divert again. And this and the important part about this process is this is what feeds the marsh. This is what feeds the wetlands sediment. So if we keep, if we don't let the river change course, then the wetlands will no longer have all the nutrients that they get every couple thousands of years and they'll start to die, which is exactly what's happening.
0: How are we not allowing the Mississippi to move? What are we doing to keep it in place?
1: With levees. Mississippi River has levees you know, as far up as uh, out, out of Louisiana. I mean, the river wants to change course at the Atchafalaya. That's why the, the Atchafalaya is such a big deal right now. My grandpa said, like you said, This river used to be small. And now people are like, this is a big river. It's got a big current. 30% of the water that comes down the Mississippi is the Atchafalaya River. So only 70% of the Mississippi River actually goes to New Orleans.
0: At this intersection of the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya, is is it human-controlled how much water goes into the Atchafalaya, or is it just a natural distribution?
1: It's human-controlled as far as how much water, but, but we can only control it so much. Like we, we can only stop so much of it. We can't, we can't stop all of it. We can only just kind of like half, you know, especially during spring when the springtime flood comes we, you know, that helps keep Baton Rouge and new Orleans from flooding is we, we have to let some water down the Atchafalaya. So it, the Corps of Engineers deals with all that flood control, but as far, I mean, we can't, we can't just shut it off and stop it. There's no stopping it. We just, there's kind of some halfway control of it. So the river is naturally just gonna, it's one day there's just gonna be a flood and, and the river will no longer be able to contain itself and it'll just go down the Ashraflai and there's nothing we'll be able to do to stop it and it's gonna flood a bunch of people out and, and people might die because the river's gonna change course eventually one day. And so why don't we just facilitate the process so that way we can evacuate people and 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 coordinate everything and make it happen because we know it's going to happen
0: and I also saw in your in your social media, your Instagram, I think it was that you in, in one of your descriptions of the bird's foot Delta, and you have a great picture from your plane that really helps to see the bird's foot, and you also draw on that picture like which path you took on your canoe, but you talk about that the delta is dying of thirst, even though it's underwater.
1: Yeah, that's what's going on with the Bird's Foot Delta. The Bird's Foot Delta—it should not exist. It is highly unnatural area. It, it, the the river's just been been like strung out into the Gulf of Mexico, and it's just so basically all the sediment that that the Bird's Foot Delta is made of should be sediment that the wetlands need to thrive and live. So, it's just getting dumped out into the Gulf of Mexico, just like uselessly, all this really nutrient rich water. And that's why the Birdsfoot Delta is just built up. When you look at a map of Louisiana, it's just like sticking out just randomly way into the Gulf.
0: This is not on my mind. I, I live so far away. Are the people there in Louisiana, is that this must be on their mind?
1: Oh, yeah, everyone around here knows about the Ochafala and about the how the river wants to change course. even Even just common people who don't do river stuff know about it. It's common knowledge around here. Like I said, one day there's going to be a flood and we just won't be able to stop the river. We can all, we we are just we're like little ants making little dams and if we can only do so much it, against the power of nature. So we got to use our brains to to figure out how to safely proceed.
0: Ellen ends her Mississippi River journey at the Gulf of Mexico. She turns to the west in her canoe and starts rowing for Texas. As she stated at the beginning of the show, this made sense for her to row home. Upon leaving the Mississippi and entering the Gulf, Ellen is on the open water for a couple of weeks. Eventually, she gets herself into the Intracoastal Waterway. But before she does that, she is island hopping on the ocean along the coast.
1: It took about two weeks to get from... The Mississippi River mouth to the intercoastal along the Gulf of Mexico before I could even get to the intercoastal I had to make my way because the intercoastal um, breaks off in New Orleans I, I passed my exit basically I saw the, the mouth of the intercoastal basically on the Mississippi to my right to my west and I was like there's my ticket to Texas and I passed it on purpose because I wanted to go all the way to the Bird's Foot Delta. But then I get to the Bird's Foot Delta, and the intercoastal is like way inland. So I had to make my way along the barrier islands, go island hopping, and then hit the first bayou, and the bayou will take you inland. I rode upstream on the bayou and hit the intercoastal from there. So it took me a couple weeks just to even get there.
0: What is a bayou?
1: They're almost like small, small rivers. Um, they don't have a lot of flow. They're just, uh, they, they connect the water, basically, because there's so much water around here, and this place is so flooded. It's basically the channels of the floodplains.
0: When you were between New Orleans and the, and the mouth of the Intracoastal, and you're, you're island hopping on these barrier islands, was that pretty awesome out there?
1: Oh my gosh, it was incredible. It was my first time on the ocean ever. I had never been in salt water before. I, I, was, I, I became a beach bum. I was like camping, you know, and I, and I rode along the surf side too because the waves in South Louisiana are really small and you can launch in and out of the surf. And I had a blast. I just did beach bum camping. I made friends with the dolphins. I had never seen dolphins ever. And now they're breaching in front of my boat and I'm just like, you know, in awe. I, and there were some, some big storms that came through and I just, uh, I just battened down the hatches and, and took it. And uh, all, all my stuff was getting rusty and I didn't know why because it's my first time ever in salt water. It was just a, it was a great transition just to just throw myself out there and in this canoe that I was really comfortable with at that point and row on some big water. It was awesome.
0: When do you start fishing on your journey?
1: I would just troll mostly because I row at a pretty good trawl speed, uh, depending on the current. And so I was hitting some catfish down like South Louisiana. I really wanted to fish in the Gulf of Mexico and I tried to fish in the Gulf of Mexico. And I got gifted a pole while I was in the near the Birdsfoot Delta area. And someone, someone gave me like a really nice pole that I can fish in saltwater with and some really nice lures too. And I threw him out there and I just, I didn't, I, I tried, I tried, but I didn't succeed. So I kind of like gave up and I was uh, in, I kept catching a lot of rocks, <laughs> a lot of rock fish because I was, I didn't want to get too far away from shore. I, I wasn't confident to leave the shore very far. Um, I did catch, I, I would fish in the surf sometime from camp because there were some storms that came through. So I just kind of fished while I was waiting for the storm and I caught a stingray I would catch cra- crabs with a net in, in the surf. Uh, just, you know, when you're lo- walking along the surf, you, you see those blue crabs in there, and I just caught them with the net.
0: How many days into your Mississippi journey are you at when you're out there on the barrier islands catching crabs?
1: Oh, at that point, I, I was like three months on the water.
0: Tell me about this, like who you've become in this time frame. You, you see the pictures of you out there. You look like you don't look like you're going home. You look like you are home. Your descriptions, (laughs) catching fish and hanging out with dolphins and catching crabs. I mean, it just sounds like that's the way. That's the life. Who have you become, and and what's with you still? Because you now are back to truck life and paycheck life.
1: That's a great question. I I really like what you said. Like I'm not going home. I am home. I might might steal that. But that, that's really what it felt like. And, and uh, the transition has been it has been rough, to be honest. It's been an interesting transition. And at this point, this is my fifth expedition. This is the fifth time that I've gone out and, you know, lived that, that life and come back into society for the fifth time. And you think it's going to get easier, but honestly, I think it gets harder every time because you get more and more comfortable out there. Because when I when I first went out, started doing expeditions, I was not comfortable out there. You know, it, it, it was like I, I was like, ooh, this I, I don't feel comfortable. I'm cold. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Or I'm hot or whatever. It's, I don't like these sensations. But now now I've got a routine. And now I that is that is my home now to be out there. And that's why I'm getting this big boat, too, because it's like I just I got to keep going. There's no why. Why stop? Um, But I've changed as, as a, as a person. And I think, I don't think back to this summer. I think back to the upper Mississippi and, and I've been doing a lot of thinking actually, and I've only been off the water, like I said, for a month. And I'm not, I'm thinking all the way back to to Missouri. And I'm I'm glad we talked about the Missouri river because it's like that, that's what started the whole journey. And now my river journeys have sort of like come to this definite end. You know, you can always go back. On the rivers, but that you'll you'll never be able to do them again for the first time. So I've I've like traced all this water, and there's like this feeling of um, like ooh, there's no water left, and so to there's no more water left to explore. You know, of course that's a ridiculous thought. I can always go on I, the Ohio, the Arkansas. I could do that, but I got dumped out in the ocean. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, to, to help this transition, I need to plan a next, another expedition.
0: We will hear more about this next expedition in a couple of minutes. First, Ellen eventually leaves the open water of the Gulf and joins the intercoastal waterway, using this to navigate the last remaining 500 miles along the southern coast of the United States to Texas.
1: It's the water highway, man-made. Uh, it was built around the same time as uh, the locks were built on the Mississippi. There was like a whole time where we just made all the water highways happen. Mississippi Intracoastal. The Intracoastal goes all the way from Texas, along the coast to all the way to to Florida, and then it goes up the eastern seaboard as well to New York. It's it's where all the shipping happens instead of instead of all the shipping having to happen um, offshore. Now the tugs, I mean, they can only take so much. Um, waves and wind, so it gives them a sheltered highway, basically, to, to push their loads. I was only in a coastal for about a month, I think, and it was about 500 miles.
0: So you go down the intercoastal, you you leave the barrier islands, you get into that, that more highway, the waterway, and you're traveling to the west, to Texas, where you grew up, and you eventually get to... To the Trinity River Inlet, and you paddle upstream, and you go meet your family, is that right? That's right. Where do you meet them? Why tell us about that experience meeting them?
1: Well, I stopped I, I just kind of I pulled over the the bin right before that anyone would be able to see me, so I just kind of like pulled over before just just to have one moment with the water. And and just kind of take a moment, and uh, and it, and and just like just like the the anniversary day that happened on the Missouri, you know, it wasn't as as grand as you always expect. It's always just you're just kind of experiencing it. But I do I do remember there was like this moment where I rode over the spot where the airplane crashed, and and I had this weird thought that like, oh, I hope I don't accidentally run into them or, or hit, you know, catch my boat on, on there, you know, like you would catch a snag. And then I was like, well, that's ridiculous. Of course they pulled the airplane out. like that no. And it was just like a weird, I had sort of that moment. Um, and then when I saw my parents and, and everyone again, it was like, it was just like another day, just like another stop. So it's very, very weird to, to have a momentous sort of event. The last like four years of my life just sort of ends, just like, just like the, the river just sort of ends into the ocean, just sort of anticlimactically. But I think that was, that was right, that was, that was the way. I didn't want a big ceremony or a big thing at the end. I just wanted to quietly do my thing.
0: Running the biggest rivers of the Great Plains is behind Ellen. She is now back to work as a flight instructor and being with family. And she is planning her next great expedition and around the planet ocean trip not by sail and not by motor this will be an ellen powered rowing expedition
1: basically what i was thinking of when i was coming down the mississippi last summer i was obviously thinking about the ocean already because i'm thinking about where i'm going um and i was like well maybe when i get to the ocean you know i can do my next expedition i can do like a like a lap of the gulf of mexico or something that'd be kind of cool you know and then I'm like, well, you know, if I do a lap in the Gulf of Mexico, then when I get like to the Yucatan Peninsula, I'm probably just going kind to of want to keep going south. Because if I have made it that far with whatever boat I have, I'll, I'll probably just want to keep doing my thing. And I'm like, well, if I do that, then I can go to Panama and then I can go through the Panama Canal and then I could be in the Pacific. And then I was, I just kind of like started thinking about where I could go. and And I eventually ended up deciding that I could go around the world if I have a boat that's capable of going across oceans, then it's capable of going along coastlines. And if it's capable of going across oceans and coastlines, then you just, it's just a matter of putting it together.
0: Ellen made the down payment on this boat, and you can see it on her website. She's targeting a 2022 launch for a six-year planetary rowing expedition. Ellen is looking for sponsors. You can find her on her website, ellenmagellanexpeditions.com. She is also on Instagram and Facebook as the same.
1: I feel like this is this is not just for me at this point it became much bigger than me it became about other people and and their dreams and their inspiration and basically like hey you know I'm doing something that seems impossible you know what what what's what's the dream that you have that that's been on the back burner forever you know what why why aren't you doing your dream right now what what's you know, it's I think other people need it just as much as I do.
0: This show is edited and produced by me, Sam Carter. All music is written and produced by Diabolical Sound Platoon. An PPI sized thanks goes out to Ellen Falterman for telling her story to the River Radius. We are always looking for new leads on great show topics in river culture. You can reach us by email. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius.
1: I did have a gator check me out all night. One time I was camping over the water cause there was no land. And so I had my boat underneath me, boopoosh, you know, like those big kind of depth charge splashes with his tail, boopoopoosh, like 20 feet away, 15 feet away, 10 feet away. And I'm like, what am I gonna do? Move in the middle of the night? He's just going to have to deal with it.